And if you didn't know, we, all, we have another church that meets here. So for, for quite a while, we've had three churches. We've got a, a Korean-speaking-only church that meets in one of the classrooms over here uh, earlier in the morning. And so, again, we're happy to do that. Uh, I heard a rumor that we have some recent retirees among us. Fernando, did you officially retire? Yeah? All right. Fernando, retired. And uh, I don't see him here today, but David Hubbard, I think, recently retired as well. So, uh, well done. All right, let's get to the word, shall we? Last week, we began a new series in John's Gospel together. And we saw that God is the eternal word from the beginning, the creator of all. And we saw that it is in his nature to make himself known. He's not hiding. We worship a God who's not hiding. He's self-disclosing. We saw that he has made himself known in the most spectacular way by coming to us and as one of us. How amazing is that? The eternal word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus that we must repent and believe to be made part of God's family. And just as John the witness joined in God's mission to make himself known, we too are called to that same mission of making God known to others. And this week we're going to look at John the witness to see more clearly what his mission was all about. Because ultimately his mission is our mission. His mission is our mission. So what does a, what does a faithful and effective witness look like? These are questions that we're after this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 1 verse 19. We're going to read through verse 34. You'll find this on page 1053 if you're using our Pew Bibles. And I invite you to stand with me if you're able out of reverence for the Word of God. And follow along with me as I read. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is rich. It is powerful. It is able to penetrate our lives, dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. We thank you that your word is living and active. Father, may we receive your word this morning with glad and open hearts. And Father, may it change us, make us more like your son, Jesus. And may your spirit be our teacher as it gives us understanding in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. John the Baptist is an intriguing character. We don't get the detailed description here that the other Gospels provide. So look with me at Mark chapter 1, 4 through 8, so you can just see what I'm talking about. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here's this wild guy out in the wilderness wearing animal skins and a leather belt, eating bugs and honey. I mean, this is going to get someone's attention, right? And there's no small number of people going out to him. He's drawing crowds. And so he gets the attention of the religious rulers in Jerusalem at the Sanhedrin You know, sensing a disturbance in the forest, they send a delegation of priests and Levites to do a spot check to see if this John guy is kosher or not. And if something was off, they would correct him, and if he was resistant to being corrected, they would marginalize him and shut him down. But they had to uh, first bring this report back to the religious leaders about who this guy is and what he's about. Now, you need to know <clears throat> that in first century Palestine, this, this community of, of Jews was, was rife with messianic expectations. Just understand the culture for just a moment. Think about it. The Jews were under oppressive Roman occupation. And the great hope of so many Jews was that the great messianic king foretold by the prophets would come and kick those Romans out of their land. 
We want our land back. We're done with these Romans. Get them out of here. We need this messianic king to come and kick these Romans out. However, along the way, there had been many pretenders claiming to be this king, and revolts had been staged and were ultimately unsuccessful. And as a result, it made life even more difficult for God's people. So the religious leaders got to be thinking, unless this John guy fits the mold of their expectations, they need to shut him down because or else life's going to get more and more difficult because of the heavy hand of the Romans on their life. So the priests and Levites get to work by questioning John about who he thinks he is. Who do you think you are, John? They want to know. Who do you, who do you claim to be? You're drawing crowds, you're wearing funny clothes, you're eating weird food, you've got this message. What are you all about, John? John anticipates their first question. He answers before they can even ask it. Again, remember, the the messianic expectations in this first century Palestine were were heavy. So he he knows what they're going to ask before they even ask it. And he says to them, I know what you're going to say. I know who you're thinking or what you're thinking. I'm going to tell you before you even ask it. I'm not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. Christ, by the way, is the Greek word for Messiah. Same thing. Then they ask if he's Elijah. And he denies this also. And then they ask if you are the prophet. And John denies this too. You see, there's three prophetic figures in the Old Testament that accompany the end times. And the prophet Isaiah speaks at great length early in his writing about this great messianic king. And God tells his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that he will raise up a great prophet like Moses to speak God's words to the people. And so there was this expectation that there was a, a future coming great prophet. And so this, this all just kind of fed into that culture in, uh, in Palestine. And people were looking, you know, for, for the Christ. They were looking for this great prophet. And there was someone else they were looking for. In Malachi 4, verse 5, God says that he will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so people were looking, they're on the lookout for Elijah. They're looking for the messianic king, they're looking for the prophet, and they're looking for the second coming of Elijah. So with these figures on everyone's minds, the religious leaders want to know, which one of these guys do you claim to be? And John's simple response is, I'm not any of those guys. I'm not any of those guys. However, if you know your Bibles, you might be thinking, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Because in Luke's Gospel, an angel tells John's father, Zechariah, who's a priest, that John, their, their son, would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So what's going on here? John's denying this. And in case there's any doubt, Jesus clarifies even more. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus tells his followers that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then comes the mic drop. He tells his followers that John the Baptist is the coming Elijah. 
He is the coming Elijah foretold by Micah the prophet. So what's going on here with John? I think it's a case of him just not having an awareness of his own greatness. He's not aware of uh, the role that he's playing in history. But how does this happen? How does it happen that a person would not know their own greatness, their own role? I'll tell you how. There's typically two reasons why someone will not know how great they are. First, they're too self-absorbed. They're looking at themselves with with such self-absorbed intensity that they nitpick everything that's wrong about themselves. And these types of people tend to uh, be insecure, and they, uh, they miss the big picture. They have low self-esteem or lack confidence. But this is not what we see with John. John is bold. Let me give you a few examples. Matthew chapter 3, he calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers and calls them to repent. Is that someone who's insecure and uh, not confident in, the, in, in their dealings with people? No. And then we learn in Mark 6 that John calls out King Herod, of all people. He calls him out for stealing his brother's wife. And then Herod has him arrested, thrown in jail, and you might know the story. Eventually, John's beheaded. John's a bold man. He's not self-absorbed or insecure at all. So something else must be going on here. The other reason a person will not know how great they are is because they're not looking at themselves at all. They're not looking at themselves at all. They're so focused on something else that they're not asking questions like, what's my legacy going to be? Or, you know, what's my place in history going to be? They're not asking those questions because they're not looking at themselves at all. So the reason that John is at the same time both humble and incredibly bold is because he's not looking at himself, but he's looking to someone else entirely. Now, I can imagine at this point, this delegation from the religious leaders are getting a bit frustrated. And the only thing John has told them to this point is what he's not. And, again, they've got to be getting frustrated at this point. Uh, So they have to bring a report back to Jerusalem. So they ask, why then are you baptizing? If you're not any of these great Old Testament figures, what are you doing? What business do you have baptizing? This is an authority question. They're asking, what right, John, do you have to be doing the things you're doing? Under whose authority are you doing these things? And to this, John says, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And this, by quoting from Isaiah here, John's linking himself with the rich message of the Old Testament prophets. All the Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus from a distance. They're saying, this is him. This is him. And John stands in that heritage of pointing, and he's pointing directly at Jesus. He's saying, this is him. This is him. Get ready. Get ready. 
make straight the way of the Lord. And then he basically says to these religious leaders, you think, you think that my baptism is something to check out or special, something that got the attention of the religious elite. You think this is special. He says, you haven't seen anything yet. You have not seen anything yet. The one I'm telling you about, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, let, let me help you understand this a little bit. As you can imagine, people of the law walking in those days, they didn't have this, this, the, the footwear we have today. They had sandals. And there's a lot of dirty, sweaty, stinky feet out there. And one of the jobs of a servant was uh, to uh, take off the sandals of their masters and, and wash their feet. It was a very demeaning job. Now, if you were a follower of a rabbi or a teacher, you, you were supposed to serve your master, but this was not allowed. This was out of bounds, off limits. You, there's certain things you do, but you don't take your master's sandals off. That is too demeaning, okay? This was a job reserved for a slave. But if you had multiple slaves in your house, and some of them happened to be Jewish, and some of them happened to be non-Jewish, you would not ask the Jewish slave to do this. Only the Gentile slave, because it's too demeaning, even for a slave who's Jewish. That's too demeaning. So here, you might expect John the Baptist to say something like, more along these lines, I am only worthy to untie his sandals, meaning that I'm not worthy to be his pupil, only his slave or his servant. No, he says, I'm not even worthy. He's so great in comparison that I'm less than a slave. I am less than a slave. And what John's doing here is he's taking a a known cultural category and he's shattering it. He's saying, this rabbi, this person is unlike anyone you could ever fathom. He's so great. And you've known nothing like him. He's saying that the one among you that you do not know, he's like anything you've ever seen. And then he says, and the one who comes after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to the prophet Joel, through whom God promised this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this was fulfilled after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now in verse 30, John says, The one who comes after him outranks him because he was before him. So Jesus' ministry you know, timeline-wise, comes on the heels of, of John's ministry, but he's saying, the one who comes after me was before me. Way before me. He's the one. The eternal word from the beginning. Remember from last week? The word made flesh, who created everything. Before him there was nothing. This is who John is saying comes after him. He outranks me because he's way before me. He's the creator. Nothing was before him. And then verse 29, 
The next day, John sees Jesus coming toward him, and John makes a shocking proclamation. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now remember, John's father, Zechariah, was a priest. He grew up around the sacrificial system. And, and, and the word that John uses for lamb here is amnos. And this is not a word that you would use to describe a cute, cuddly lamb, as if to say that Jesus is some sort of cuddly therapy animal. That's not what he's saying here. He's, now this word is a specific reference to a sacrificial lamb, an animal whose purpose it was to die. And this would cause any good Jew to think about the events of the Passover when God commanded his people in Egypt to kill a lamb and to smear the blood on the doorposts of their door. And the, uh, the destroyer would pass by and spare the firstborn in those homes. And later, God would command the institution of, of the sacrificial system, but the animals that were sacrificed were never meant to take away sin. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in 10 verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of goats or bulls and goats to take away sins. So what God's people didn't understand clearly at the time is that when God spared the firstborn sons of Israel, it's because he was getting ready to offer up his firstborn son for, this, for their sins. This is the Lamb of God. God was preparing to sacrifice his own firstborn son to take away the sins of the world. And this is what John means by calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what made John so great and such an incredible witness is that he knew in his bones that he was not the answer to people's problems. He only knew that Jesus was the answer to people's greatest problem, their own sin. For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you, like John, can be great witnesses by refusing to be self-absorbed and know that you are not the answer to people's problems. Sometimes we can think that, can't we? I've got the answers. I've got the, the tools. I've got all this stuff I can give you, right? Try this self-help program. Read this self-help book. Twelve steps to a happier you, right? That's not what people need the most. They need Jesus. They need the Lamb of God to take away their sin. Only when you see the beauty and the worth and the glory of Jesus like John did, only this will make you forget yourself. Only this will make you humble and bold. Now we see in verse 34 that for John, the seeing of Jesus led to the proclamation of Jesus. And that's how it is for us too. To see him is to proclaim him. And we see him today most clearly in the Word of God, the Bible. 
So church, to be better witnesses, we must see Jesus in his word in order to grow in humble boldness like John, taking our eyes off ourselves and fixing them on Jesus. And this is my aim every Sunday. When I get up here to preach, my aim is to call you to take your eyes off yourself and to soak in Jesus so that when you walk out these doors, you can't help but proclaim him to others. It's a pretty simple job. I got to proclaim Jesus. I got to show you Jesus week in and week out. And if you get tired of hearing about Jesus every week, then you probably need more Jesus. Now I got this I got this little verse I put on the pulpit here to remind me. This is from 1 Corinthians 9:16. For for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that's my job, church. I'm not here to make a platform for myself and gain YouTube subscribers or anything like that. My job is simple. I've got to point you to Jesus. And if ever I don't do that, I expect you to hold me accountable. Pastor, where was Jesus in that sermon? I want to hear that from you. Uh, Hopefully not, because I'm going to bring that to you every week. But uh, hold me accountable, church. If you don't hear about Jesus on a Sunday, I failed to do my job, and I want to hear it. This was John's mission. While we're told in verse 19 that the delegation of priests and Levites were sent from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, we learn in verse 33 that they're not the only ones who were sent. John too was sent, but by a much higher authority. He was sent by God, the Word from the beginning, sent by God Himself to reveal Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is a direct tie back to John, the writer's purpose for writing. John is here revealing Jesus as the Son of God. And remember, the reminders on your bulletin cover, the purpose for which John writes, but these are written so that you and others may believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That we have life in his name. That this mission is not just a job for great people like John or even paid ministry professionals like pastors and elders. If your life has been transformed by seeing Jesus, you too are sent, just like John the Baptist In fact, Jesus makes this clear in John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus sends you. If you've been transformed by Jesus, you're a missionary. Congratulations. There aren't two classes of Christians, normal, everyday Christians, and then super Christians who spread the word. No. The call to be a Christian is the call to be sent. The call to be on mission. To see and proclaim Jesus to others. This is the basic work of all normal Christians. To be sent to be on mission. In fact, if you find yourself without a heart for living a sent lifestyle, you probably need to do some self-reflection and some repentance. God, where have I gotten off track? 
I'm sorry for getting off mission. We need to uh, have people to hold us accountable. That's why we're the church. We're here to encourage one another, to, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews 10. This is how it's always been from the earliest days of the church. The gospel didn't spread. The Roman Empire wasn't turned upside down because of super Christians like Paul and some of the other leaders of the church bringing the gospel to the farthest corners of the world. That's not how the Roman Empire was turned upside down. It was because all Christians, both small and great, rich and poor, slaves and free, made it their consuming passion to tell others about Jesus. It's what normal Christians did. And if you're here today and you haven't yet seen Jesus, I want you so badly to see him today. To see that he died and rose again for you. To take away your sin. To forgive you. To make you part of the family of God. This is the great and free gift of God to all who will receive it by faith. It cannot be earned. It can only be received. Receive it today. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He took your sin all the way to the cross and died for it. And he offers you life in return. If you're here today and you're a Christian who's been lazy or apathetic about sharing Christ with others, repent of this and look to Jesus. Because that's how you get off track. You take your eyes off Jesus. So to get back on track, put your eyes on Jesus. Get back in the Word. And while your sins may be many, His mercy is always more. Amen? His mercy is always more. So we don't want to beat ourselves up. Jesus took that to the cross. And for that, we can be thankful. If you're a Christian who's severely insecure and this keeps you from sharing Jesus, take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off yourself. Off your problems. Or even other people. And look at Jesus. Proclaim him that others may believe and live and find life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It is convicting. It is challenging. It's transformative. Father, as we've looked at the example of John the witness and how you've used him, Father, uh, help us to examine ourselves with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Convict us if we've been lazy and gotten our eyes off you. Convict us if we've fallen into that trap of thinking that sharing you with others is only for certain types of Christians. Help us all to see you. Help us to spend time with you in your word, learning more of your character and your love for us. And Father, we pray that just our hearts would just expand and explode with a, a passionate pursuit of proclaiming you to our community. Our community needs Jesus. Our community needs Jesus. Help us to, to be reminded of that. Anything else that we could give them will pale in comparison to Jesus, their greatest need. Father, help us to keep that in mind. Remind us. Help us to remind each other. Help us to be the church as we spur one another on toward love and good deeds and encourage one another, 
uh, even more as we see the day uh, drawing near. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, without whom we would have no hope. But because of Jesus, we have the greatest hope this world could ever know. Help us to share that with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.